0: So for us, we're going to be looking again at one of the parables uh, of Jesus. Uh, We're in the series for this summer, Uh, just looking at the parables that Jesus taught, and most of them deal with the kingdom of God. Uh, The initial idea that we looked at was the reality of the kingdom, a few parables towards that. Last week we kind of started to look at what entrance into the kingdom uh, is and how does that happen. Uh, We looked at the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons, uh, oftentimes called the prodigal son. But Jesus is actually speaking to the ones... ...who think that they are above needing saving. So he's speaking of God's grace, but his point is to those who have missed it. Uh, And so, But today, we're going to just see the idea and kind of more the characteristics of what entrance into the kingdom looks like. uh, Just in uh, the heart and the humility and uh, what God brings about. So, uh, would you stand with me as we just uh, long to hear from God. This is his word speaking to us. We're going to be in Luke 18... Uh, Looking at uh, verse 9 through 14, uh, and uh, this is a parable uh, that Jesus spoke in order to convey the message of the gospel. So he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, would you, uh, would you teach us much? Uh, a very short passage, but yet, God, I think we could dwell on this for a long time. And maybe, God, even if we come to a cognitive understanding of it, our hearts would betray that we, uh, we don't need this passage or we don't relate to this. Father, help us to see ourselves for who we really are. Uh, And God, in that, would you, uh, by the Spirit, just allow your grace uh, to be what we rest on. Father, I pray for those in this room today who have never trusted in you for salvation, who have never moved out of their own goodness and their own righteousness, their own good deeds. God, I pray you bring all of us from that to a place where we rest on you, on Jesus and his work. And his grace alone, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated, please. All right, time for the world's easiest trivia quiz. Okay? All right, how long did the Hundred Years' War last? 116 years, right. Okay, what, true. What, uh, what country makes Panama hats? Ecuador. Uh, what is a camel's hair brush made of? Squirrel fur. Uh, the Canary Islands in the Pacific—they're named after what animal? Dogs. It's from the Latin. I have no idea why. But uh, King George's King George the Sixth first name was Albert. Okay, Uh, you get my point. How long did the 30 years war last? 30 years. Why didn't you get that one? Right? It's 30 years. Uh, My favorite. Chinese gooseberries are from New Zealand. All right. Uh, We live in a funny world, and and getting things accurate and and knowing things is not always easy. Sometimes seeing things accurately is not uh, just uh, totally obvious to us. You know, we live in a world where funny things like that happen, or life is often tricky to really see things for what they really are. And when it comes to seeing ourselves, you know, we think a trivia quiz might be tough, but oftentimes, looking at ourselves, rightly assessing our hearts, I would say most of us are not that great at self-assessment. You know, just look at social media, right? You know? The, those people's lives are just incredible. Uh, and you know we only wish that our lives worked out as well as everybody that posted all of these beautiful and wonderful things. Or hang out around guys who either play golf or go fishing. Self-assessment uh, is very difficult, right? Uh, you'll get some serious inaccuracies around uh, the ability of those, of those guys. Or think of the way that you assess yourself and uh, your own ability it 's easy to overestimate or even underestimate our weaknesses and our shortcomings, right We overstate what we 're good at and we understate what we 're bad at, or at times we just totally minimize things entirely. you know think of think of our sin that we we uh, actually hurt people with or even our sin before god it 's so easy to minimize. That right, We excuse our sin. Well, you know, something or someone else made me do it or caused it. I'm just reacting to what somebody else or something else is happening in my life. Rather than take and own our sin, we minimize it or we downplay it. We reason that it's just, well, this is a normal struggle. Everybody struggles like this, right? Or we just simply deny it. That's not true of me. And so the idea of an accurate awareness of things, a right understanding of things, is not always obvious, and it's, it's not as meaningless as a pointless little trivia quiz. When we are talking about ourselves and understanding our, our heart and our mind and, and really where we are uh, in relationship with God, an accurate awareness is essential, but it's very difficult to find an accurate awareness of our own sinfulness. Because that's what we're coming to in this passage. Because who does Jesus speak to? In verse 9, Jesus speaks to those some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So Jesus is speaking to people who thought they had it figured out and looked down on everybody else that didn't. And he goes first to the Pharisee. So... In our modern understanding of Pharisees, Pharisee is a negative word. Because we rightly understand the uh, the teaching of Jesus, especially that of the New Testament. That that the Pharisees, uh, they they were outwardly obedient. They did everything right. And so in the first century, these guys were like kind of put on a pedestal. We kind of use Pharisee as a negative term. But in first century, Pharisees were up on a pedestal. And Jesus takes a Pharisee and puts him as the first example uh, in his parable. Uh, First thing we look at is this this Pharisee. Why? Because he misses an accurate awareness or assessment of himself. What does verse 11 say? The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus... God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Well, I think Jesus is being generous by calling that a prayer, right? Okay, This is kind of like the humble brag without the humble part. You know, I'm not like other men. I'm not extortioner. You know, I don't take money from people. I'm not like the unjust, people who treat people poorly. I'm not like an adulterer who don't keep their vows. I'm not like that tax collector over there, a Roman sympathizer who steals money from his own people. I am glad that I'm not like that. What's the most common word in that prayer? the word I. First person pronoun. I am not like other men. I fast. I give. I give all that I get. He doesn't even pray all that you have given me. Isn't it interesting that it's I, I, I tithe on all that I get. Um, and uh, it's not even all the things that God has provided to him. So what does the Pharisee think of himself? Well. This is the illustration of the people he's speaking to in verse 9. So who is he speaking to in verse 9? Those who are confident uh, in their own righteousness or trust in their own righteousness and look uh, down at others with contempt. So this Pharisee is the illustration of that, that he's confident, he looks down on others, he's persuaded of his own righteousness, he thinks he has virtue in and of himself, Uh, And he despises people that don't measure up to his standard. That's the Pharisee. Remember, this guy is the guy that's supposed to have it figured out. So that's what he says. Then how does he stand? What's his posture? Well, he stood up. Now, in fairness, the tax collector stands also. Okay? But... uh, But there could be two translations of this, and commentators go either way. The ESV takes it standing by himself, kind of like out in the open. But, um, uh, you know, stood by himself praying. But the other could be stood praying about himself. Either really kind of gets the the point across that the focus is on him, uh, him drawing attention to himself rather than his prayer. You know, either way, it's not an endearing preface to his prayer. It leads us to know what he thought of himself. He thought he was the real deal. He had his act together, and everyone else should only hope to be like him. So the content of his prayer displays the view, not like other men, not like this tax collector. He's superior. So what do you feel in that? What he says and, what, and how he stands and his posture is this kind of sense of pride, uh, that's his assessment, uh, this sense of maybe even missing who he is. And he's a lock like one of the churches in the book of Revelation. Remember the, the churches in the early part of Revelation, the seven churches that Jesus is speaking to? And there's one church, uh, the church of Laodicea, and it, it's, uh, it's familiar because that's the church that Jesus says they're lukewarm. You know, they're neither hot nor cold, Uh, And I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, Jesus says, because like lukewarm uh, is kind of like one of those kind of gross kind of temperatures in terms of food. That's the description of this church. The next verse doesn't get as much press. What does that lukewarmness look like is in Revelation 3.17. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I think that's the, the sense of this, this disconnect of, of thinking that you're one thing, that you've got life figured out, and it's going well, but yet reality is you are in desperate need. And so what also is his, uh, his source of his confidence is not just what he thinks of himself, it's he even goes to not just his pride in, in, in kind of missing a sense, he goes to this idea of performance. Uh, verse 12, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. So the requirement of tithing, uh, and uh you know, to give a tenth is according to the old testament law. But it's um, but but what we see here with the idea of fasting, there was only one fast prescribed in the Old Testament. And that was related to the Day of Atonement. Once a year, one day a year, and here he is, I fast twice a week. You know? Hey, I'm going above and beyond here, God. I, I I'm performing well, and he misses it in his pride. So, are you sitting here, and how are you trying to be right before God? What is your, uh, the, the manner in which you come into the presence of God? What's the manner in which you come even this morning? Because as much as we're gathered as a people, we are here before the living God to give him praise and glory. And performing is the easiest to see. Like, oh, this is what I'm doing to get God on my side. But what undergirds I thoughts that performance is going to actually mean something is this sense of pride. And maybe even missing a right assessment of who we are. How have you trusted in your performance as a way to justify Yourself, You might say, well, I I don't know. Have you ever done this one? When confronted by someone that loves you, you know, like rightly confronted, you know, not like flippantly and and it's off base, but like when someone actually confronts you and they're accurate in what they're doing and needful in what they're doing. Have you ever responded by telling them all the good things that you do or have done? What? immediately, what what are you doing when that's the, when someone confronts you with some kind of shortcoming or maybe way they hurt you, and you respond with your record of obedience, what are you doing? You're trying to live by performance, right? Uh, you know, if you respond that way, it's the classic form of trying to justify yourself. You know, so a true assessment of your heart and your motives is what God is calling us to here, you know. Just take what the Pharisee did. Do you compare yourself to other people instead of the living God? Do you look down on other people thinking that you are somehow better than they are? Do you not see yourself as a sinner in the sight of God? Like on your own, you have nothing that should allow you into his presence. Do you try hard to be acceptable? Do you try hard to be accepted by God, all those things are indications that we don't have an accurate assessment of our own sinfulness. And then I got really carried away with alliteration, okay? Then there's an acute appreciation of God's holiness, okay? And so God's holiness uh, is the fact that our sin cannot be in the presence of God's holiness. He's completely other. He is morally perfect. There is no flaw in him and do you appreciate it with precision, with th- this sense of uh, that it is very much on your mind? Because the first thing is that we miss who we are—an accurate awareness. But then, if we even if we rightly understand ourselves, but we we miss the appreciation of God's holiness, we still miss the need of the gospel, because. How does Jesus describe the tax collector in verse 13? He says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So this is how we tend to think, okay? Now, looking back, the the, the second week I was a pastor at Grace Point, I shared this. Uh, Just, I was like, okay, interesting. This is how we tend to think we tend to think like a stock chart. That, you know, we start down at the beginning with conversion, and, you know, uh, living for Jesus is we're going to get more and more, we're going to live for Jesus more and more as time of conversion goes on. And in a sense, that is accurate. Uh, There is a sense where God makes us more and more after the likeness of Christ. But I want to submit to you a different paradigm, and that is when you grow in Christ— you actually start at that point of conversion, and as time goes onward, what you realize is a greater awareness of God's holiness, but you also have a greater awareness of your sin. Now, did God, God's holiness grow in your time of being a Christian? No, you just became aware of it more. And at the same time, you become more aware of your own Sin. And so, uh, for those of you who's, who have done gospel centered life, this is the, the, the cross chart out of that first chapter. That when we grow in Christ, we all the more see the holiness of God, and then we see our own sinfulness. Even if we're seeing gains of, of sanctification and becoming more like Christ in some of our life, we'd realize holy cow, the pit was a lot deeper than I thought it was. Right? And that's what maturity in Christ looks like. Is, wow, God is way more holy than I thought. And I am way far more sinful than I, be, than I thought when I began this whole walk. And so when you do that, at first you thought you needed a little Jesus. And then as you grow in Christ and you see that divergence grow even more, you're like, I need tons of Jesus. And so By the time you're 50 years into your walk with the Lord, you realize you need Jesus way more than you did when you started. Because we tend to think this way. The better I get, the less of Jesus I need. That's not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is the more I grow, the more I recognize I need him. Do you see the opposite of how that is, the opposite of what the Pharisee is doing? And it's exactly what the tax collector is doing. So remember, Pharisee is the hero in first century. Tax collector is like the guy who's sold his own people out to the Romans. And Jesus makes the hero become the the tax collector the hero, and the one that misses it is the Pharisee. Because what do we see in the tax collector is a humility. Right? Rather than pretending, rather than this pride that wells up in him, rather than, you know what, I'm going to perform well, what does he do? In verse 13, what is his prayer? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There is a humility in him. His posture, what does he do? He stood at a distance, he stood far off, he beat his breast. Now, we don't do that in our culture. But in antiquity, that was like one of the greatest expressions of mourning and grief in their day. If someone in your family that you dearly loved died, what did you do? You would beat your breast. It was kind of like this way of expressing grief that you could not even articulate. And there's the tax collector. The guy who is like rejected by his people humbling himself, standing at a distance, beating his breast over his own sin, not even willing to look up, what does it convey? Humility, his feebleness before the living God. He is softened because he knows he is unworthy. He knows that chart. He sees it full well. And so Andrew Murray, um, a writer back in the 1800s, he wrote this about humility. He said, humility is the displacement of self by the enthronement of God. That, that we, in a sense, we come off of the throne of our life and God is put in his rightful place. And that's humility, is that we humble ourselves before the living God. But then we also get to this place where we are helpless. So remember... So the uh, humility kind of goes against the pride of the Pharisee. But the Pharisee also was, hey, I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of everything I get. And what does the tax collector do? Well, he realizes he's helpless. It's not that he performs well, he's helpless. Not only is he humble, but he's helpless. God, be merciful to me. You know, that, uh, have mercy that we all. It's already been said once or twice in our service that we walk in here not not like with our hands full, offering to God. We we walk in here today in need of his desperate grace, or we are in desperate need of his grace. It's interesting that that who the, the tax collector sees as the active party in his prayer, his prayer, God be merciful. That he's the recipient of God's actions. Whereas the Pharisee was the active party in his prayer. What does the Pharisee know? Is that he cannot save himself. He is, what he defines, a sinner. And that is anyone who has rebelled against the living God. Anyone who has lived uh, for themselves and themselves alone. And in a sense, a sinner deserves nothing from God yet that person knows that they need God and his mercy. So R.C. Sproul, when he was commenting on this parable, he said the difference between these two men was not that one was righteous and the other a sinner. That's not the, that's not the difference. They were both sinners. The difference was that the tax collector knew he was a sinner and repented of his sin. This, this repentance and faith is that, God, I have sinned against you. God, I know I cannot save myself. Uh, you know, that you, God, are the only savior of sinners. Please show me your mercy. So it's not just repenting of sin, like I, I, I'm a sinner, but it's God, you're the only one who can save. It is repentance, kind of confession, and uh, kind of a turning from it, but also faith that Jesus is the only one who can do that. And the first time that you pray that prayer, not words, but from your heart, that's called conversion. That's when you go from what Amazing Grace talks about, from blindness to being able to see, uh, from going from death to life, when you recognize your sin before God, And know that you can't save yourself. You confess it before him and you beg for his mercy. He promises by the Holy Spirit to come and make you new. It's really interesting that we, uh, I don't know if you caught it, in the song that we sang, Glorious Day, um, and I'm struggling to find it. There it is. Uh, In Glorious Day, uh, did you catch... I was buried beneath my shame. I was, uh, I was buried by that, and who could possibly carry that kind of weight? I was in my tomb. My tomb of what? Trying to live rightly, trying to, to, to get it right, trying to, to, to be good enough. Uh, I was breathing, but I wasn't alive. Uh, all my failures, I tried to hide. I tried to cover them. I tried to pretend that they weren't real. And all it was, was our tomb. If you can relate to that at all, the promise of the gospel is that Jesus wants to free you and free us from our striving and actually offer us his grace. How beautiful that, you know, out of the darkness into his glorious day. It's the resurrection power of bringing someone who is dead trying to do it right and brings them to life in Christ. And the only way through that is humility. So Andrew Murray, again, kind of goes to this. He said, here is the path to the higher life, down and lower down, just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place. So the moment God finds men abased, which is kind of low, and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to exalt and to bless. Did you catch that? It's not just be low and be miserable, but as we humble ourselves, God comes in with his glory, his grace, and he fills, he shows his blessing to us and he is the one who actually causes us to rise, And that's why resurrection is not just something that happened on Easter Sunday. It's the story of the gospel. Death and resurrection. Humility to then living in the power of God. And so there's this sense where we all have to come to that place of beginning a relationship with God. Where we repent and trust uh, in Christ alone. And then it becomes an ongoing part of our life. Because then we start acting like the Pharisee again. But it's not that we are now need to re-up our relationship. It's just this sense where our hearts are kind of going back to the old way. And God is calling us back. But then here's the astounding part. For the, for the original hearer, the astounding acceptance by God. That in verse 14, Jesus shocks his listeners. I tell you, he says. This man, the tax collector, went home justified rather than the other. Justified right before God, in standing before God with God's smile upon him. Who goes home justified? The tax collector. And Jesus says, I tell you, like emphatically, this is what's going on. And this is absolutely confounding to the first century, first century hearer. The one who outwardly looked good, the Pharisee, was the one who should be accepted. And yet Jesus says it's the tax collector who is right with God. We live in the suburbs of America. We live in the suburbs of a southern city. There is a lot of outwardly looking good. There is a lot of church going. That does not mean you are right before God. The only way that occurs is to humble yourself before him in repentance and trust in Jesus as your Savior. Looking good. Well, we all know we can fool each other, but we can't fool the living God. And Jesus says this, for everyone who, who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And I think that's what helps us understand uh, why your goodness and your actions and your coming to church and your being a good person, you being you know honest and fair in your dealings, you know maybe even being a, a pretty generous person. We, This verse helps us see that all of that is rubbish before God because none of us can be good enough. Unless you humble yourself before God, you will be humbled by him. We all fall short. Repentance and faith is the only way into the kingdom. Repentance and faith is the only way to be right before God. It's there that we find him. It's there that we, find, uh, that we find Jesus. Because it's interesting, when you think about it, when you think about it, you're saying, wait a second, the Pharisee is the one who did everything right, at least outwardly, and he's now being humbled. The one who did everything wrong, he's the one that is now accepted. Here's the beautiful picture of the gospel, is that you and I are accepted not just by forgiveness, but by the righteousness of another. So there's a there's a pitcher that used to pitch for uh, the Baltimore Orioles, Todd's, uh, Todd's team, and uh, uh, his name was Jeff Schneider. He pitched and played one year of professional baseball. He pitched in 11 games his entire career and gave up 13 earned runs in those 11 games. Let's say that's not good, okay, because they didn't pitch very long, okay? Uh, and But his baseball card, is valued well over hundreds of dollars. You know, like, that guy's worthless. Why would his card be worth anything? Well, Bobby Bonner, he played four years of baseball. Uh, he only appeared in 61 games. 61 games. Uh, only eight runs batted in and no home runs in his career. His card is also valued at well over hundreds of of dollars. Why in the world would these guys be worth anything is because they are on the same baseball card as Cal Ripken Jr. <laughs> One of the greatest players of all time, 21 years for the Orioles, 3,001 games, 3,184 hits, 431 home runs, 1,695 RBIs, and a shoe-in Hall of Famer. Well, If you are standing on your rightness and your ability and your record, quite honestly, that's worthless. But it's when you have faith in someone who is exceedingly worthy, who has a record of obedience that you and I could never achieve. When we are not resting on Cal Ripken Jr., but we are resting on the record of Jesus who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, who died the death we deserved, who rose from the dead to give us life, if you are resting on him, you repent of your sin and have faith in you, have entrance in the kingdom of God. And how beautiful is that? Because then nobody can celebrate their own goodness and ought to bring a deep humility among God's people. That we gather We gather, as one author said, as one beggar trying to tell another beggar where there is food. Not that we have it figured out. We come humble because our God in his grace has made an amazing, amazing move of resurrection in our lives. Do you know him? If you don't, we would love to introduce you to Jesus that you might have faith in him and entrance into the kingdom of God let's pray father I pray that you would bring us out of any sense of self-reliance bring us out of any sense of thinking that we are better than somebody God help us to not compare ourselves to other people because God we all far fall woefully short of your glory your greatness, your perfection, and your holiness. Yet, God, because of your grace, when we humble ourselves, you exalt us. You bring us close. You make us new. God, I pray you draw us to yourself. Father, for those who have known you for years, I pray, God, that you would uh, bring about a newfound humility uh, in us by your Spirit. God, that you might be the one who builds us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.